And, and then he says uh, that uh, he claimed that most tents in the square were empty when the tanks rolled over them. There were no signs of a massacre. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. in the early hours, the remaining students armed linked together left the square. Now, this is like completely different from what one remembers reading, right? And you mentioned it in, uh, you know, in, in your book as well, like how the idea that one had was that, you know, hundreds of students were just mowed down by the tanks. Yeah, so that's a very good question, Manjula, and that gives me an opportunity to clear the air a bit. I I don't want to give the impression, and I hope I haven't given the impression in the book, that there were no killings. My no, no, you was, mentioned later that there were. Yes, my point was that there were, uh, there was, first of all, I've come across very few eyewitness accounts of what happened in the square. Men, the Chinese army blocked it off and therefore uh, n- neither diplomats nor media could really get in. But from the writings of the Chinese student leaders as well, many of whom now reside in the United States or Australia, uh, there are clear accounts that the vast majority of students had already left the square on the 3rd June morning. Once the mm. Chinese army, the more serious units of the army began to surround the square. But uh, 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 Chinese uh, students that were left and who have spoken about it themselves admit that they left the square in an orderly fashion and that there was virtually nobody left in the square when the army itself moved in. So reports about tanks running over people in the square or students in the square, I think we have to uh, very carefully consider because there are no accounts which definitively corroborate this. Now, there was, however, there were, however, killings outside the square, particularly in a, a district known as Mushi Ti, which is mm. where a lot of the top level and mid level, uh, not the top level, but certainly the middle to upper level Chinese Communist Party leaders lived. Mm. Uh, and there, uh, there are differing versions of what happened. In some cases, of course, there was outright firing on the, on the students and the crowd and uh, mm-hmm. there were people who died. On the other hand, there are also credible reports, Manjula, that uh, the public in some places attacked uh, the armed forces which were going about doing their job or carrying out their orders. Mm-hmm. And it, the firing was in self-defense. Now, uh, anecdotally, I can tell you, and I didn't put this in the book because I could not corroborate it, but anecdotally, my wife and I were witness to one such event where right in front of our home, we were watching from the sixth floor balcony, an armored personnel carrier was physically stopped by hundreds of people, Uh, Molotov cocktails were thrown at them. The hatch was prized open and uh, this dozen or so or probably less number of PLA soldiers were pulled out. Now, I did not physically see them being killed or, or, or beaten, but the manner in which the, the, they were pulled out and hauled away, I cannot rule out the possibility of physical violence. I don't think that the intention of the crowd was to put them in a car and send them home. 
So <laughs> there were instances when uh, violence took place against soldiers, and I would hazard the guess that the soldiers fired in self-defense. So mm. it's a complex situation, but yeah. there's no doubt that the Chinese state is covering up for what may well have also been brutal killings of some students, as well as the subsequent repression that followed. Uh, they, they hunted down a number of students who were on the wanted list. Uh, uh, the charges were filed. They were imprisoned. They were tortured. Um, and uh, subsequently, uh, a lot of the suspect list students have been denied economic opportunity, uh, become non-persons, forced to go into exile. So I'm not in any sense saying that the Chinese state uh, came out of it clean. But on the other hand, I think Western narratives also need to be judged by whether there are factual accounts, whether these uh, anecdotal uh, recountings are backed by the facts. And that's all I'm asking the reader to make a judgment of. I've given my view, but I think it's the reader who should make up her or his mind. Hmm. Okay, but even the diplomatic core, I mean, the Western, uh, like the US, hasn't come out well at all. I mean, you know, this little bit, many diplomats were living in the diplomatic co- compound overlooking uh, the bridge. I don't know how to pronounce that. And thus had a bird's eye view of the of the area and knew that the rumors were untrue. Presumably, US diplomats who were staying in the same compound also had these facts. And yet a US embassy cable on 7 June claimed that there was fighting between PLA units and artillery fire had been heard in the southwest, heard in southwest Beijing on the night of 6 June. And and then also all these number of deaths and stuff like that that were put out. Right. Well, I, of course, accessed whatever uh, cables were declassified by the US State Department and a couple by the uh, British uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And uh, again, while I do admit that uh, uh, reporting when the event is taking place can sometimes uh, be anecdotal or might be a little exaggerated, uh, I did feel that um, the reporting was not entirely accurate. Because after all, uh, just as a US or a Western diplomat was present in Beijing, so were we. Uh, we, for instance were still traveling to rescue a few Indians who were trapped here and there, including some students and people in Beijing University. So, for instance, a couple of days after the event, we drove through the the same streets. We saw things, we saw burning of vehicles, we saw burnt out tanks, etc., Uh, And so on. Now, uh, the Americans in the West had, of course, far more resources because there are many more people, there are many more resources. I'm sure they too went to rescue their own nationals. So obviously, both of us were seeing the same things on the ground, but the reportage was different. And therefore, I came to the conclusion, uh, as well as based on the declassified telegrams and reports, that there was a certain uh, unfair bias in Western reporting. And that certain things which were anecdotally picked up uh, might not have happened. Um, That having been said, uh, there is something called the fog of war. uh, And, Mm. you know, in the fog of war, sometimes misreporting takes place. So I don't Mm. want to be judgmental, but (laughs) I do want to say that uh, uh, to to my readers, those who read the book, that we must be careful of what is being said. Uh, about any event, whether it is in the media or it is by a government. Uh, Because sometimes 
these are motivated reports, so they're not based on facts, so they're not corroborated by facts. And therefore, mm-hmm. it's important to get multiple perspectives before one makes up one mind, one's mind. Of course, one has to wake up one's mind. One's mind. And in a sense, uh, the, this book is me making up my mind. But I hope the reader doesn't necessarily believe that I expect her or him to think the way I do. I think the objective of the book is firstly to make it an interesting read for somebody who wants to know about China and then to hopefully sort of make them think and ask the same sort of questions that you, Manjula, are asking me today. Okay. Okay. And what also struck me was the the US turnaround, right? And if this is real politics, it was also a searing lesson on how great democracies abandon publicly avowed principles such as human rights in self-interest without having the courage to say so openly because they fear their own public opinion will see how hollow they are. You know, I thought that was like very hard hitting. Talk about that. Oh, that I uh, is a very firm opinion of mine. And it isn't, isn't, isn't simply based on this particular incident, but on my mm-hmm. entire diplomatic career of 30 to 35 years, most of which was spent in China or on China. You had uh, uh, Western delegation after delegation uh, informing the Western media after the talks with the Chinese that they had raised issues relating to human rights, to gender, to uh, forced labor in prison camps, uh, to the situation of ethnic minority Tibetans and Uyghurs and so on and so forth. But uh, uh, what they were saying in the media was very different from what they were saying to the Chinese. Uh, And now both the declassified records as well as the Chinese we spoke to uh, would very often say that they were just doing this for effect. Uh, The fact is, Manjula, that uh, from 1985 to 2010, these this quarter century was the golden decade, uh, golden quarter century for the West. Mm. They made vast amounts of money. And uh, in fact, uh, the economies of most of uh, the West uh, doubled uh, in size and in wealth in these 25 years because of this enormous market and this enormous pool of labor which manufactured goods for the rest of the world. Uh, And they were not about to kill the golden goose. Uh, So while they had to satisfy public opinion back at home and also used it as a pressure point, my own view is that they were quite cynical about it. They would talk about this, but their actions spoke elsewhere. Now, within three weeks of this uh, so-called Tiananmen massacre, as the West described it, you had the uh, President of the United States sending two of his closest advisors on a secret mission to China to repair the damage. Why would you send somebody on a secret mission unless you wanted to hide their going there? Unless you were worried that what you were projecting publicly was different from what you were doing privately. And then they sent a second delegation uh, less than six months later. And subsequently, they removed sanctions, they resumed business. Yes, they made the obligatory noises on human rights. And yes, they did press for release of uh, those who had been arrested by the Chinese after the Tiananmen incident. Students, they persuaded the Chinese to allow some of these students to go abroad, to take up scholarships, to go into exile. That's all true. But the fact is that business as usual uh, resumed fairly quickly after the Tiananmen incident. And uh, in a sense, they it was only much, much later 
that they now consider China to be a threat or a true challenge. Uh, and that is, of course, because in those 25 years when they were making money, the Chinese were copying technology and improving upon it. So that today uh, they are a true challenger to the Americans. So uh, this was certainly something I felt in strongly then and I maintain that there is a certain element of hypocrisy in the use of human rights by the West. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And since you've spoken about gender, you know, what struck me is that there are very few female figures in this. I mean, there's one elder who's a woman, like who appears, and then that uh, uh, one pro, pro student leader. But otherwise, it seems a completely, I mean, even more male dominated than we are. So what what's your view? I think is that an impression I have or it's partly correct Manjula because in the political arena it is a completely male dominated system uh, where uh, uh, women are not even encouraged to uh, rise to the top. On the other hand, in the general population, it is perhaps one of the most gender balanced countries in the world. Uh, in other words, the, the the role of women in the workforce, whether it is a pilot driving, uh, flying an extremely sophisticated uh, uh, Airbus or a bus driver driving a bus, uh, women are a substantial part of the workforce. They are a substantial part of the research, academic and intellectual force. Uh, mm -hmm. There is uh, uh, none, uh, very, uh, I mean, uh, certainly gender violence uh, and uh, violent crimes against women um, uh, do not occur as they do in Not other countries in the same way. Uh, uh, and uh, while, so, of course, you have the Asian phenomenon, which is the boy child is desirable mm. as compared mm. to the girl child. Uh, mm. Although even that, I think, is changing both in China and in India. But yes. I think gender parity is much better in China than in many other places in the world at a day-to-day -day existence. On the other hand, in politics, in the higher echelons of business, the media, uh, uh, etc., uh, I think, uh, uh, I mean, there's much, much further that the Chinese have to go. Oh, yeah, I found that bit really fascinating. I mean, I, I uh, until I read this book, I didn't realize that there was such a, um, you know, such a, uh, I mean, absence of women. But now, now that you said, like, violent crimes are low, I, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> it's a... One doesn't know what is, you know, more positive. So No, but we have to hand it to them, Manjula, that uh, women uh, in j the arm janta woman mm -hmm. is much more equal there. Uh, and in a sense, freer in what she wears, in how she moves around, in, uh, you know, what job she does, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, so the freedoms. Yeah, while there are while there are certain things which you know where the the male uh, domination is extremely strong and politics is just one of them. I mean, almost at the top of everything, uh, I think if women find the glass ceiling much tougher to break in China than in India or in other places. But uh, we should not confuse that with the uh, the general situation. The okay. general situation, I would say, is is pretty good. Hmm. Okay, so it's it's really a complicated, just like how India is. It's yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's yeah, it's got many layers to it. I guess one can't just say okay, yes, or that. Yes. So, 
Okay, I think uh, that should be it. I've asked you, uh, you know, all the questions that that kind of jumped to my mind when I was reading the book. And I must say, it's it's a very interesting book, and you know, it's like uh, kind of mm, taken apart some pre-existing notions about the Chinese. At least I had. So, and hopefully right. other readers also. So. Yeah, no, and thank you for having me, uh, Manjula, because I really wrote this book. It was, of course, a, a labor of love for me, but mm-hmm. I wrote it because I want uh, 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 the average Indian, particularly the younger ones, to read mm-hmm. it, simply because uh, this is going to be, uh, if not the most powerful country in the world in their lifetimes, in, in, in the generation below 40, then certainly one of the two most powerful countries. It is also the most powerful country by far in our immediate neighborhood uh, and one with which every Indian will have to deal, whether it is business, whether it is pleasure, whether it is governance, whether it is uh, science and technology. Uh, we are evenly matched 1.4 billion to 1.4 billion uh, and we simply can't ignore them uh, in the same way that they can't ignore us. So if this book also helps in enlightening our younger uh, people about China, makes them think about China, and at the same time is a readable book, then I'd be a very happy man. Uh, however, that's not for me to decide. I think that's ultimately for the, as they say, the proof of the pudding is in the reading. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. And also this is, I mean, uh, for readers, this is like exactly the right time because I think the, this week is a 32nd, I mean, this month is the 32nd anniversary of the Tiananmen Square incident, right? Yes. And leading it's up also, to... It's also, uh, this year is also the centenary year of the founding of the Communist Party. And oh, interestingly, oh. the Chinese Communist Party has brought out a new history book, which uh, in a, in many ways conveniently airbrushes the more inconvenient truths of the Tiananmen incident out of it. So in that sense, I think while they are preparing their population for a different narrative, uh, I hope that this book also becomes part of the uh, material available, not just to Indians, but eventually also to Chinese, that there is an alternative narrative. Uh, And I Mm. think it's important because... The Communist Party wants its own people to believe one thing. And I think that uh, we, are, uh, as Indians who don't have a, a dog in the fight, because we are, we are not competing <laughs> as the Americans are with them, uh, we mm. should actually uh, sort of, you know, record our views on what we think is the, is the situation, uh, uh, not just on Tiananmen, but on everything else. Because, as I said, Chinese are like us, very thinking people, intellectual people, curious mm. people. And they should have the option to read about themselves from elsewhere, just like we have the option to read what an American or a uh, Indonesian or a Nigerian think about us. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. And also, I mean, like, I- I'm wondering if this history that they bring out, I mean, what, what would they say about Mao and, you know, about the Great Leap Forward and all the sacrifices, uh, well, you know, the deaths and that occurred as a result of, you know, famine. Would they be, uh, would they be, you know, would they give accurate figures or would that be airbrushed too? I mean, if Tiananmen Square is airbrushed, I'm wondering. Yeah, so that's a very good question because, of course, there's no question of giving figures or of even admitting, <laughs> or of even admitting the suffering. But what is interesting is that they've, of course, while they've reduced the entire 10 years of the Cultural Revolution to a few pages, mm. uh, they have interestingly 
called it a seriously damaging period in China's history. And uh, earlier, they have sort of obliquely held Mao responsible for it. Uh, interestingly, this is in contrast to the Tiananmen incident. So whereas uh, the Cultural Revolution was seriously damaging in some ways, the Tiananmen incident is seen as outright efforts by uh, a small group of people to damage uh, the, 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 the greater good of, of 1.4 billion Chinese. So um, I guess history is written by those who, uh, uh, you know, are, are there at that, at that time. Um, so it's a, even from that perspective, I think it's interesting for uh, the readers to to read this book. Hmm. And one last question, you know, these the the student leaders who uh, escaped and went abroad. I mean, they I can they are leading their lives in obscurity and you know homesickness or whatever, you know. So what what I mean, they're just going to continue like that, I guess. I mean, now they must be in their fifties. It's not even old age, you know. True, true. No, you know, Manjula here, uh, one has to um, credit the Chinese leadership with the fact that uh, by exiling the troublemaker, they've killed two birds with one stone. They haven't given an opportunity for the Americans to uh, hold this and hit their heads with it each time as a human rights violation, which is what the Soviet Union made the mistake of doing. Mm. Uh, the Soviet Union held on to its dissidents until they were forced to hand them over and they didn't win brownie points. Whereas the mm. Chinese simply said, well, why don't you go away and don't come back? <laughs> now, with that, they not only eliminated a potential problem with the West, but they eliminated a potential problem back home because as we we all know our politics teaches us that you matter only if you are within and among your people. The moment you are not within and among your people, you become irrelevant to the country. Yes, yes. So they've been reduced, as you very correctly put it, they've been reduced to irrelevance and they're not even in their old age. Uh, so as far as I know, if you ask an average Indian uh, or even an average American, do you know, have you heard of Wang Dan or Huar Khaishi or Chai Ling? Uh, the, the likelihood is that they may wonder whether it is a new Chinese dish. Uh, <laughs> I doubt they will think that these are, uh, you know, people who at one stage rocked the world, as it were. Uh, so, mm. I mean, you know, while uh, I sympathize with this, I, I think, um, I mean, it's a very clever way of getting rid of problems. Yes. Particularly yes. in non-democratic societies. Mm. Okay. Okay, now for the readers, please go out and get Tiananmen Square, The Making of a Protest, A Diplomat Looks Back. If you're interested in China, and even if you, I mean, even if you aren't, you should be since it's our, you know, large neighbor and we have constant, well, issues with them. So it's better to understand them than to be living in ignorance. And this book certainly gives you many insights uh, from the Indian perspective into it. So go out and get it. Thank you so much, Mr. Vijay Gokhale, sir, to be with, you know, to talk to me. And it's been very interesting. Thank you, Manjula. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. And I wish all the readers a good read. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.